Well, with the death of the Queen of England, King Charles will be the next in line to take the throne. And suppose, somehow, you had the opportunity to be in the presence of the king. You had the opportunity to interact with the king and the royals. Most of you know that would be a privilege. It would be a pretty crazy experience. Most of you also know that when you come before the king, there are certain rules and protocols and etiquettes that must be followed. There are certain things that are acceptable before the king, whereas others, other things are not. And so I did a quick Google search and found a few things that you can and you cannot do. So when you interact with the king, when you address him for the first time, you are to address him as your royal highness. And after that, you may refer to him as king or sir. <clears throat> Another one is that you cannot reach out your hand to shake his hand. You cannot initiate it. Rather, he has to do so. Otherwise, there will be severe consequences. You also need to be very mindful of your word choices. You got to be careful as to how you communicate before the king. There are certain words that are considered vulgar. For example, you cannot use the word toilet. You cannot say, I'm going to go use the toilet. <clears throat> Instead, you are to say, Lavatory with the V. You cannot even say, It's a pleasure to meet you. You think that's a pretty nice thing to say. Rather, it is assumed and it is a sign of disrespect. Instead, you are to say, or you could say, How do you do? You cannot turn your back toward the king. That's a sign of disrespect. I'm going to start saying that to you guys. You cannot turn your backs <laughs> to me. Um, you can do it to Brandon all day long, but I'm just kidding. <laughs> you cannot start eating before the king as well. As you can see, when you come before the king, there are certain expectations that you have to ab abide by. Rules and protocols and expectations decided by the king or his administration. Approaching royalty in the wrong way can be a sign of disrespect. And depending on what it is, there can be severe consequences. But how much greater would it be if you were in the presence of the king of kings and the Lord of Lords, in the presence of the God of the Bible. You see, this is what we find in the book of Leviticus. But to a much 
infinite degree. Because we're not talking about any human king. We're talking about the king of the universe. Leviticus teaches us how to be in the presence of the king and the rules that you must abide by. There are special protocols and expectations that must be followed when you approach the king in order to maintain a relationship with him. We learn about what the nation of Israel had to do in the presence of the God of the Bible. As you know, we've been going through the books of the Bible, doing a survey. So far, we've covered two books. We've looked at Genesis and we've looked at Exodus. In Genesis, we found out that it was the beginning of the creation of the world. We learned about origins. As we read through Genesis, we see that God is the one who has created everything. And when he created everything, it was good. It was perfect. He declared it to be good. In Genesis, we learned about the first human sin. We learned about curses, God's judgment in the flood. In Genesis, we also saw God initiate his plan of redemption, his grace to sinful humanity. In Exodus, the theme we learned is redemption. Remember, the nation of Israel were enslaved to Egypt for 400 years. That's how the book begins. And then God saves them. He delivers them from bondage, from captivity. We saw the great exit. We saw the sea dividing so the nation of Israel could go through. We, see God's, we saw God's power, his judgment on his enemies. We saw God's faithfulness to his people and much more. And I've mentioned already, we come today to the book of Leviticus. Now, I don't know what your thoughts are on this book. It is one of the most neglected books of the Bible. This is one of those books that really hinders your Bible reading. You set up a goal in the beginning of the year, I'm going to read through the Bible, and you're doing really great as you're trekking through Genesis, as you're going through Exodus, and then you come to Leviticus, and then your whole reading plan goes south. And it just takes a long time for you to get through that book. Some of you may skip that book. And you know it, so you planned ahead already. So you go Genesis, Exodus, and then you skip Leviticus. You go to Numbers. I admit it's not the easiest book. Obviously, you know it's not a narrative like Genesis and Exodus. Rather, it is instruction. Instruction given to God's people. But I would argue it is a very, very important book. We find a lengthy presentation of who God is 
and what he requires of his people. And that teaches us a lot about our God. So it's a very rich book, and we as students of Scripture should find ourselves in this book as often as we can. It's a very important book. And let me give you two very important reasons as to why you should prioritize reading this book. One is because it is God's word. The Hebrew title for this book translated says, and he called. It's the first few words of this book. Leviticus 1.1 starts, then Yahweh called Moses. And this is significant to this book because again and again throughout this book, you see God calling Moses and speaking to him. And so God speaks again and again. It is dominated by his words. God is directly speaking to Moses and through Moses to his people. If you were to change the font to read for every time God spoke in this book, majority of it would be read. In the same way we see in the gospel, some publishers change the font to read when Jesus speaks. Leviticus would be filled with the red font because God is speaking again and again and again and again. Thus, we must also recognize that this is the word of God. And 2 Timothy 3.16 reminds us that all scriptures God breathed. It's the product of God's breath. And so it's profitable for us. The second reason why this is important is because it is the most, or one of the most quoted books in the New Testament. I read somewhere that there are at least 40 references to the book of Leviticus in the New Testament. So we need to know what this book teaches. Secondly, it would be very difficult for us to understand the book of Hebrews. We need to know what Leviticus says so we can understand the book of Hebrews. So this book is important for us, even the New Testament, New Covenant believers. And I hope that as we study through this book, as we do a survey, it will be helpful in your own study. So what can we learn? So I want us to consider four key questions so that we would have a better understanding of this book that would aid in our personal growth. Four key questions. The first question is, who is the author? Who is the author of Leviticus? And we all know it is Moses. Moses is the author of this book, He's the author of the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. There's no doubt about that. But there are people outside of this church who argue against this point. And I thought about, I can just say he's the author and I can move on, but I think it's helpful for us to hear it again and again. And I, thought, I also thought it would be helpful for me to give you two compelling reasons why he is the author. In case if you ever end up arguing with somebody who does not believe that. You can prove to them that he is the author of this book. The first one is that Moses is the central mediating figure in this book. Moses is 
the central mediating figure in this book. The statement, the Lord, Yahweh said to Moses is seen again and again in this book. In fact, a total of 37 times. The following are a few examples. The wor- verse 1, as I've read already, states, Then the Lord called Moses, and he spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Leviticus 4.1, as, as God is giving directions regarding the sin offering, there God says, Then, or, then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Later on in this book, Leviticus 25.1, The Lord then spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai, saying, the book finishes the same way, Leviticus 27, 34. These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the sons of Israel at Mount Sinai. And this is just four examples. This is just a sample size. The whole book, again and again, you see God spoke to Moses. Another important reason, a compelling reason, is Christ also affirmed Mosaic authorship. Christ affirmed that he was the author of the Pentateuch as well as this very book. One example is Mark 1.44. After Jesus heals the leper, he says this to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And he was referring to this book. I think specifically chapter 14 where he's talking about cleanliness and and leprosy. Jesus affirmed Mosaic authorship. End of case. Drop the mic. It's over. He is the author. So without a doubt, Moses is the source and sole author of this book. Scripture supports this. Our Lord supports this as well. And we should confidently hold this truth. A second key question to consider is what is the setting? What is going on before, as this book is written? After the exodus from Egypt, the Israelites, as you know, went through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, and they came to Mount Sinai. There, they entered into a covenant relationship with God. And that's recorded in Exodus 20 through 24. And then the rest of the book consists of God instructing Moses on how to construct the tabernacle. And it kind of talks through uh, the building of it pretty much. And then Exodus 40, verse 17, it says, Now in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. It was completed. So at this point, it's been about one year since the Passover and the Exodus. And the tabernacle has been completed. And then we see at the end of the book, after the tabernacle has been erected, we see the king descend into their midst. He takes up residence within or among his people. Exodus 40, verse 34. 
Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And this is where Leviticus begins. God summons Moses to his palace at the base of Mount Sinai, and he begins to give him instructions to pass on to the nation of Israel. So this is the setting of this book. Another key question to consider is what are the major themes? What are the major themes found in this book? There's really not much debate over this. <clears throat> Many agree what the themes are of this book. Uh, there are two major themes I want us to consider and quickly observe through this book, and that is, first, the presence of the king. The first theme that I would like us to consider, and as you read through this book, you will see it easily and quickly, that the presence of the king is a major theme. As I've mentioned, the tabernacle was constructed and God came to dwell with his people. We saw Exodus 40, verse 34. Now, Israel is, is living in the presence of the Holy One. His presence is both visible and, and tangible with the nation of Israel as he dwells among them. No matter where they are in the camp, even if they're miles off, they can see the presence of the king. Again, this was a visible reminder that the all-powerful God of the universe was in their midst. A cloud by day and a fire by night in the sight of all Israel. Yahweh was dwelling with his people. God allowed a localized representation of his presence to be seen among the people. Now, this reference to God's presence is emphasized again and again throughout this book. You'll notice as you read through this book, the phrase before the Lord or in the presence of the Lord appears again and again, a total of about 60 times. That's repetition. That means God wants you to focus in on that. The presence of God was indicated through how they worshiped the king. The instructions given pertaining to sacrifices repeatedly stated that ceremonies were to take place in the presence of the king before the Lord. For example, as the Lord brought, or as the people brought their burnt offerings, it was before the king, before God. Leviticus 1.3. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. When they brought the peace offering, again, it was before the Lord, Leviticus 3.1. Now, if his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he is going to offer out of the herd, whether male or female, he shall offer it without defect before the Lord. Same with the guilt offering, Leviticus 5.19. It is a guilt offering. He was certainly guilty 
before the Lord. And you see that with the grain offering and the, and the sin offering. Sacrifices were offered to the king in his presence. See, there needed to be a conscious awareness on the part of every Israelite that when they were bringing the sacrifices, they were coming before God. And it needed to be accepted by him. Now with the king in their midst, the question is, how does one live with the reality that God is present among them? You see, Yahweh's presence, as you see all throughout Leviticus, is both a blessing, but at the same time, it is a danger. It is a great blessing to be in the presence of the Lord, but at the same time, it is very dangerous and scary. When one is faithful, when one is obedient to God, It is a delight to be in his presence. On the other hand, when one is disobedient and unfaithful to God, it is scary. It is dangerous. It can bring disaster. The reality is is, disaster did end up coming. One example is in Leviticus 10. Remember the story of Nadab and Abihu. They were killed by God, by fire. You see, they did not come to God in the prescribed way. They did not treat God as holy. They brought strange fire. There's a debate as to what that may mean, but we know for sure they did not come in the way God had prescribed for the priest. And thus they faced God's wrath. They faced his judgment That is death. So God's presence is a blessing as well as a danger. And so the the presence of the king is a key theme, and you will see it again and again as you walk through this book. Now before we move on to the next theme, I want us to consider what does this mean for us? What are the principles that we can take from this reality? Obviously, we are the church. We are not the nation of Israel. The church is distinct from the nation of Israel. What about us? See, the New Testament clearly teaches that under the new covenant, God dwells in his people. At salvation, the Spirit comes and dwells in the believer. Your your body, your life is a temple to the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.19 states, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? See, the Spirit has taken resident in you, believer. This means we are to worship God with our lives keeping in mind that he is dwelling in us. He is with us. Romans 12, 1 and 2 teaches us, 
that we are to worship God with our lives. We should, our lives should be a living sacrifice to him. So for us, we must realize that God dwells with us, dwells in his people. And understanding that reality, it should impact the way we live out our lives. We should live pursuing holiness, seeking to pursue sanctification with God's grace. Our priority should be to please him Our desire should be to conform to our Lord. This is the aim for every believer. God has saved us and he is dwelling in us. Another key theme that we find in this book is the holiness of the king. The holiness of the king. Holiness is a key theme in this book. Because this portion of the Torah is saturated with God's presence, as we've already seen, since God is holy, the understanding of God's holiness is also saturated all throughout this book. There's no way you can read this book and miss that theme. The root for the word holiness appears over 150 times in this book more so than any other book in the Old Testament. So this is a key concept, a vital concept. This book communicates that God is holy. So what does holiness mean? It means to be set apart, to be distinct, to be separated. It means to be morally pure. And we know from Scripture that God is exactly those things, that he is distinct, he is set apart from everything, from all of his creation, he's transcendent, and he is perfectly holy. He's pure. There's no sin in him at all. We've already got a glimpse of that in the book of Exodus. You remember when Moses was called? In the burning bush, God commanded or told Moses to not come any closer. Why? Because he was standing on holy ground. Because God is holy. But when we come to the book of Leviticus, God through Moses expands on this topic, giving us a detailed understanding So what are some ways God's holiness is seen in this book? There are many ways. I just want to give you two ways. The first one, the first way is is through the requirement of the perfect substitute. The requirement of the perfect substitute. The first seven chapters of this book describe the, the sacrificial system. See, sacrifices were required for the Israelites. This was God's provision for sinners so that they can live in God's presence. It communicated that the only way to have a proper relationship with God was through sacrifice, through a substitute. 
Now, in the first seven chapters, we see five different kinds of offerings made to God. Without going into detail, I'll let you do that on your own, but let me just give you a survey of those. The first was the burnt offering. This was to atone for basic human sinfulness. This is really an acknowledgement of the fact that you are a sinner. And the details of this can be found in chapters 1 and and chapter 6. The second offering was the grain offering. This was to render tribute to God Most High, to, to give praise and honor to God for blessing them, for God's provision for his people. This is an expression of thanks. And again, the details for this can be found in chapters 2 and chapter 6. The third offering was the peace or fellowship offering. This was offered to celebrate the peace that, that they got to experience because of God's grace and God's kindness. And the details for this is found in chapters 3 and 7. The fourth was the sin offering. These were specific sins committed by the people. And when they did so, they brought sacrifices to God. These atoned for unintentional sins. The fifth one was the guilt offering. This was to repair any breach of faith that was brought because of their sin. And the details for this is in chapter 5 and 7. For each of these, specific directions were given in what needed to be offered and how they were to offer it to God. Some of these were voluntary. Others were required. They were mandatory. And these were regularly scheduled. These happened daily, some more than once. These happened weekly. These happened monthly. In addition to these sacrifices, there was also the sacrifice that was offered once a month. And this is found in chapters, or in Leviticus 16. And this was known as the Day of Atonement. I'm sure many of you are familiar with this. On this day, a special sin offering was offered to God for the whole nation. And the fact that it was offered annually reminded the people that no Levitical sacrifices could finally atone for their sins. That's why they offered this sacrifice again and again every year. So why was all of this required? You may be thinking, was this really necessary? I mean, there were hundreds, thousands of of animals slaughtered, sacrificed. Was all of that necessary? You see, it served as a powerful picture to the people of God's holiness and the sinfulness of man. It served as a powerful picture of, of God's holiness and man's sinfulness. This entire book showed again and again just how sinful man really is. The man has fallen short of God's standard. This is what Paul affirmed in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned 
And he's quoting from Old Testament. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God wanted them to know and wants us to know today that they lived in a state of rebellion, that they were sinful. And in order to be in his presence, to maintain a relationship, there needed to be sacrifice. There needed to be a substitute to deal with the sin issue so that fellowship with God could be restored. See, blood had to be shed to atone for sin. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Life needs to be sacrificed for sin. You see the seriousness of sin. Hebrews 9.22 states that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Death is the payment for sin. And so God is driving home the point that both them and us today we're all sinners. We deserve God's wrath. But only through a substitute we can be reconciled to God. But without this substitute, there's no hope for us. We would have to spend eternity paying off our own sin. You see the seriousness of sin? Why? Because God is holy. It's probably not a popular message now, especially in our culture. And we kind of shy away from it. We think it's a bit too harsh. But that's the reality, y'all. God is holy, and we are sinful. In the Old Testament, in order to maintain that relationship, sacrifice needed to be made. A substitute was needed. Now it's important to note these sacrifices that are found in the Old Testament, specifically in this book, did not actually atone for the sins. We know from the New Testament that these animal sacrifices were not sufficient. Rather, they were a temporary covering because only human life could atone for human life. Animal life could not atone for human life. This is why these sacrifices found in the Old Testament were perpetual. This is why they were offered day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. The book of Hebrews helps us to understand why. Hebrews 10 verses 1 through 4, there it says, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good thing to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? 
because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So all of these sacrifices were anticipatory. That is, they pointed to the future, something that was to come in the future. It pointed to something greater. This is what the book of Hebrews highlights. Jesus is the greater sacrifice. And these Old Testament sacrifices, the system pointed to him. These sacrifices pointed to his person, his his life, and his work. That's why John says, when he looks at Jesus, that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Hebrews 9, 11 through 14, there the writer states, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of Heifer sprinkling those who had, who had been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works? Friends, these sacrifices that we see in the Old Testament was pointing to Christ. And it reminded us of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, and that we ourselves needed a substitute. And that is Christ. And Hebrew tells us, Hebrews tells us that he is the once for all sacrifice given to us. That we don't have to offer any sacrifice because Jesus himself perfectly offered him self on our behalf. I know you know this. But when was the last time you thought about this reality? That Jesus was your sacrifice, that he was your substitute. And we find in scripture that his sacrifice was a soothing aroma to God. Isaiah 53 tells us that God was pleased to crush him for us because of our sin. See, Jesus had satisfied God's righteous wrath for our sins, for our disobedience, for our unfaithfulness, so that we could experience his grace, so that we sinners could be reconciled to him so that we can be in his presence. We're the ones who've sinned against a holy God. And he's the one who has provided a way for us to be reconciled to him. You know, I know we've been talking about God's holiness, but that's God's grace. That's God's love. 
we need to be reminded of this truth again and again. Because like the Old Testament saints, we sin again and again. And we need to look to Christ. Remember that he is our substitute, that he is the perfect substitute. Have you put your faith and trust in Christ as Lord and Savior of your life? Have you repented of your sins and recognized that there's nothing you could offer this holy God? And put your faith and trust in the one who can offer something. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. His life, his death, in your place. Have you put your faith and trust in Christ? And if you have, when was the last time you meditated on this truth? The fact that God is holy and that you're sinful. The fact that God is gracious in providing for you a way to him. He has provided the perfect lamb who has died in your place. But as you can see, God's holiness is, is a major theme. And the requirement of a perfect substitute is a major theme in this book. There's a second way in which God's holiness is observed in this book, and that is through the requirement of holy living for the believer. <clears throat> Having understood the holiness of God, this means we are required to pursue holiness. The people of God are called to be distinct from the world. God requires that his people would worship him, but he also requires that we worship him not only through sacrifices, which has been provided through Christ, but through the way we live out our lives. Romans 12, 1 and 2, living sacrifices. This reality, again, is emphasized again and again in this book, that we are to live holy lives. Leviticus eleven forty five states, for I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God, Thus, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Leviticus 19.2, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus 27, verse 7. Leviticus 20, verse 7. You shall consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus 20. Verse 26, just, just in case if you missed it, thus you are to be holy to me, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. And I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. See, God commanded the nation of Israel to be holy because God is holy and also to be distinct from those around him. Why? One, because God is holy, and two, it would draw them to God. In the same way, we are to live holy lives now. We are to be a light in this world, distinct from the world. Peter 
in his letter in 1 Peter 1.15 communicates, he, he essentially quotes from Leviticus. There he writes, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Thus, as children of God, this should be our aim. This is what we should pursue. We should pursue holiness. Jesus also commanded this in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.48. <clears throat> there he said, Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is what is required of us. And obviously we can't do this on our own. We, have to, we are to put our maximum effort as we learn on Sunday as Pastor Tom taught us from 1 John, we are to put in 100% effort, maximum effort. But it ultimately is God's grace leading us, and we are to depend on him. We are to be holy because we belong to God. He is the Lord, our God. He's our master. And we are to be holy because he's holy. And ultimately, by doing so, it brings him glory. And that is the chief end of man. This should be our desire. In all that we do, we are to seek to bring him glory. And by way of application, Christian, are you seeking to live a holy life? Are you seeking to be obedient to his word? Are you even in his word to know what he requires of you? As you go to class, as you go to work, are you seeking to have holy thoughts? Are you seeking to live a holy life in the way you treat one another? When you come to gather like this on Wednesday night or Sunday morning, you... Are you aware that you're coming to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Are you doing so with a pure heart, confessing your sins? This book reminds us that God is holy and his people are to live holy lives. So these are major themes of this book. Again, the presence of the king among his people and the holiness of the king for his people. There's a final question that I want us to quickly consider is what is the purpose? Let me give it to you quickly. It's, it really teaches us, again, how sinful we are and how holy God is and how sinful people can be in relationship to a holy God. See, we saw that a substitute is required, which is found in Christ alone. And holy living is required. And the way we do that is through God's grace, by the leading of the Spirit, by his word. This is the purpose of the book. <clears throat> See, this is a pretty powerful book. It is a rich book. 
It is very God-centered. It is very theocentric. Leviticus paints a very high view of God. It paints a right view of God. And this is exactly what the church needs. This is what we need. We need to continue to be in this word, specifically in this book, and allow the truths that are found in this book to correct our view of God. Because we are sinful, we will never have a perfect view of him in this life. But that should be our pursuit. You know, there are many more things I could have said regarding this book, but hopefully this was a helpful survey for you. And hopefully this will aid you in your study of this book. And the next time you come to Leviticus, you set the goal that you're going to read right through it. Let's try and make sure that we do not neglect this book. It's a very important book. It's God's word. And we learn a lot about the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. So let it, let it shape our view of him. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Leviticus. We thank you for the instructions that are found there. We thank you for the fact that you revealed to us who you are, that you are holy God. Lord, help us to revere you, help, help us to fear you, and help us to give you praise and thanks for your kindness to us, that you, a holy God, in your grace, through Christ, have allowed us sinful people to come in your presence, to worship you, to be in relationship with you. Lord, help us to meditate on that reality. Our, our greatest need has been met through Christ. Because of our sin, Lord, your wrath was upon us and we were helpless. But you, in your grace, in your love, provided a substitute for us. And the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has satisfied your righteous wrath, the one who has taken away our guilt, as David says in Psalms, you have removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. We thank you for your kindness and grace. Lord, help us to revere you, help us to treat you as holy and allow the truths of your word to impact our lives so we can live holy lives, ultimately for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name.